0: Hello, uh, welcome to uh, the Big Ten on Radio Boise. Hello. <laughs> K- Wait, have we started? Yeah, yeah. Krbx eighty nine point nine FM Caldwell Boise. And Jenna's already distracting me. We barely <laughs> got started. Luke. She's already <laughs> throwing me off here. Uh, but so I'm your host today, Luke Fowler. Uh, I'm here with my co-host Jen Snyder and uh, Jackie Kettler. Um, we're from the School of Public Service at Boise State. So. Check that out, obligatory uh, call out to the school of public service. Um, and so, other than Jen uh, distracting me with her side comments, uh, that's part of our show today. The other part is we're going to talk about one of the the big stories in the news: uh, Hurricane Florence, which is about to uh, ravish the Carolinas. If uh,
1: ravish or if, ravage,
0: ravage, ravish, whatever. <laughs> uh, about to do some damage in the Carolinas. Um, Large-scale flooding exp- <laughs> expected in a lot of places. Um, a lot of damage, um, though. We'll talk about exactly what all that means and some of the the things that are that are going on there. Um, so first, let's talk about uh, evacuations. Um, so that's kind of the the first part where everybody's bracing for, and that's what we've the kind of phase of all this that, that's going on. Uh, so I believe uh, the governors of both North and South Carolina, and I think some parts of Virginia, have uh, encouraged people to evacuate. Um, but the the big thing, and I, I think. For those who've never been through a hurricane, this is like, oh, why don't people just evacuate when they say it? Well, the problem is evacuations are, are pretty difficult, right? Um, so uh, I think uh, I think J- uh, Jackie you had a pretty interesting experience, right, in uh, Houston a few years ago.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, we had moved to Houston right before Hurricane Ike in in 2008, and they were still feeling the effects from Hurricane Rita a few years before, where lots of people evacuated, and then the storm really didn't hit very hard in Houston. But there was just such a disaster on the highways, and it was stressful. And so a lot of people with Ike were, like, very hesitant to evacuate, and then the leadership was very hesitant to evacuate. And thankfully, it wasn't as bad of a hurricane as some of these others – but it, those experiences do impact people in the future to impact whether or not they're likely to evacuate. So it, you mean it was such a hassle just trying to
1: get out of the city mm-hmm. and the freeways were a mess. And Luke, you were saying earlier, it's a nightmare just to pack all your stuff up. And then if the storm isn't as bad as you think, people are less likely to evacuate. Yeah, and I think time.
2: people just hold on to that hope that it's not going yeah. to be that bad. Right. And like, well, they keep telling us it wasn't that bad before. So we're just going to stay put.
0: Well, in my experience, and so I lived in in South Mississippi during Hurricane Katrina, and so I have a lot of friends that have done the research and lived through that. And so, well, what's happened for, I guess, prior to Katrina, I mean, for 30 years on the Gulf Coast, um, every time a hurricane was in the Gulf of Mexico, everybody said, evacuate, evacuate. And then it probably didn't hit Mississippi or Louisiana. It hit somewhere else, or the damage wasn't bad. It was something, you know, a a rough thunderstorm. And so people just started to ignore it. Um, And they're like, well, it's not that bad. And so Katrina hit absolutely damaging, one of the worst uh, you know, storms ever. I mean, the, the Mississippi Gulf Coast and, of course, New Orleans, those, those horror stories that came out of that. But then also the political fallout from how, how the recovery went um and not a lot of positive ways and so you know two years later when rita hit um particularly like louisiana they they bust everybody out they made this huge thing and then the storm wasn't that bad mm-hmm. and so then there was political fallout about how much money was spent and how much economic de- um, economic development was lost from all of these people mm-hmm. leaving their jobs and their homes and so you know there's kind of a, a a balance there between you know what's our actually risk of you know safety and all this type of stuff versus is it worth all the time and effort to leave and so um for all of our radio listeners out there you can think about what it really requires for you on a short notice to pack all your stuff up your kids your clothes all that kind of stuff and leave home for a week um And what that what that requires of you.
2: Yeah, because you need a place to stay, which, you know, sometimes there's shelters, but often you're looking at trying to get a hotel room somewhere, which is costly. Thinking about food. If you have medical needs, like sometimes that can make it hard for you. If you rely on public transportation, it can be really tough to evacuate without having your own car or way to leave town. I mean, what your comments make me think, Jackie, is that it's sort of a lose-lose situation
1: for folks who are maybe a little bit lower on the socioeconomic spectrum. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be very tricky and high risk for them to leave if Mm -hmm. they're facing that set of challenges. But if they stay, um, I think there's tends to be um, some blame that gets assigned them for not following directions. And also they're going to be um, they're going to struggle a lot more in the recovery. Mm -hmm. Right. So Luke, When we were chatting earlier, you mentioned that there's often very uneven recovery that happens depending on what kinds of federal aid are brought in and who has helped and who benefits?
0: Well, and uh, again, I mean, I guess from a policy kind of standpoint, uh, a lot of this depends on how we see people as a, either they're the victims or they're dumb and made a bad choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and typically when we see them as victims and we pay attention to them and there's this kind of high salience target populations and victims, like we throw a lot of money at them. Um, and then the other times there's not that much. And so I, I think one of the, the most interesting things of, of living in Mississippi after Hurricane Katrina was the difference in how things were portrayed in Louisiana versus Mississippi mm. um, Louisiana really the governor and the the mayor uh, Ray nagin who uh, went to federal prison for corruption by the way just it's a little side note um, they I mean Louisiana is well known for corruption they did not have good leadership and we all know the stories of New Orleans um, Mississippi on the other side of the, the border actually got hit harder in a lot of ways uh, Bay st. Louis was not there anymore um, and when I say not there like the hospital got washed away their major bridge got washed away um, but that, that recovery really got handled well from a leadership uh, standpoint. Uh, the governor at the time, Haley Barber, really came out with an amazing overall like rating from the citizens of Mississippi, really came out as a hero, and it just didn't get talked about in the national media because there wasn't as much blame to be assigned, so it wasn't nearly as, the, as interesting of a story. Um, but clearly, like the money, the federal money, at least flowed a lot more to Louisiana than it did to Mississippi, and that money flowed in different ways. Um, and so uh, whether it went into you know rebuilding levities and low-income housing, housing versus uh, infrastructure projects, right? Um, so it's kind of interesting to see how that recovery plays out.
2: Yeah, in Galveston after Hurricane Ike, there was actually arguments on whether or not to accept federal funding because they some didn't want to rebuild low-income housing, and they never really did build near as much as existed before the hurricane, which made it hard for people to come back home um, afterwards, even when they wanted to move back to Galveston.
0: Well, you know, and linking back to your, your comment about low-income people, like, and of course after Katrina, there was tons of low-income African-Americans from the Ninth Ward in, in mm-hmm. New Orleans, and that's very famous now for how hard it got hit after Katrina. They ended up in Houston, mm-hmm. and they could never afford to go back home. Um, and then Ike came and hit, and then they were just kind of stuck, right, um, at, And at, So basically to say they didn't have the mobility and the funds to to be able to evacuate the, the way it was. I mean, if you don't own a car, how do you evacuate your city, right? You can't exactly walk away from a hurricane.
1: So there's the socioeconomic aspect, and then I was thinking about the psychological aspect. There was a profile in in the New York Times today of folks who insist on staying and mm-hmm. riding out the storm, and maybe there are some socioeconomic mm-hmm. elements involved in those stories as well. But this, this prof- particular profile suggested that there was a little bit of um, – I don't know, tradition, history, maybe even machismo involved for some folks. who Stubbornness. Their stubbornness. <laughs> their parents and grandparents rode out storms. Uh, they don't want to abandon um, the, their objects, the things that they own. Um, and they've, there's also maybe a little bit of fa- fatality. Like, uh, if I go and it's my time, I go. So I thought that was really interesting to yeah. see. Well, you well. know,
0: yeah, I definitely, uh, I think if you... Mm, grow up or or you meet people that grow up on the Gulf Coast where, you know, hurricanes hit fairly often or, you know, anywhere in South Florida, there's definitely like this attachment of place, but there is like a certain amount of like honor and like bragging rights associated with the fact oh yeah like I lived through Katrina we lost power for a, a week you know we lost power for a month like I you know made it like there's there's a story associated with that you know there's like a little bit of pride associated with it. It's like
1: almost a coast form of survivalism like we have survivalists yeah. out here and yeah. maybe that's what it looks like when you live on the coast.
0: Yeah and it's sort of like and of course like that's traditional and it goes back you know it's like oh my grandfather rolled out Camille I rode out Katrina and so there's there's some connections there that that makes sense and I mean it's definitely a cultural component, um, and it, it- particularly for our listeners out west it, it might sound a little weird but I mean when you grow up around these storms and they happen every every summer and you kind of feel the fallout of it, it it's just not that big a deal and I liken it to you know kind of wildfires in the west I mean when there's wildfires anywhere in Idaho and they're going oh, like you know me and my wife kind of talk about like oh is it a problem I'm like well Jen's not that upset or worried about it so I probably <laughs> should we, we're not gonna get Oh you know, no! if Jen texts me and says she's uh, <laughs> evaluating I, we might leave but you know it's that kind of same type of yeah. mentality is you know how upset do you really get about it you know and kind of judging the risk the
1: old timers become barometers (laughs) all right well we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to discuss the complexity of trying to connect severe storms um, like florence with uh, evolving uh, knowledge around climate change stay tuned
2: this is molly from widow's peak and you're listening to radio boise 89.9 fm caldwell boise community radio for boise and beyond Hey there.
1: Welcome back to The Big Tent. Uh, I'm your host, Jen Schneider, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Luke Fowler and Jackie Kettler. And today we're talking about um, the big story for today anyway, which is Hurricane Florence, which what is a day or two out from making landfall on the East Coast? Um And what we want to talk about in this segment is whether or not we can connect climate change, and in particular, human-caused climate change, with the increasing severity of the storms that we're seeing. So storms like Florence, which is supposed to be a pretty big one. Uh, uh, It's only a Category 2, but you two were explaining to me earlier that the severity really has to do with how much rain is going to fall.
0: Well, so... The categories of hurricanes have to deal with wind speed. Uh, as I, I've been reading a lot of the kind of, I guess, analysis of this, one of the issues with Florence is it's just a geographically large storm. So it's just really spread out, uh, which means there's going to be a lot of water dumped mm-hmm. in a lot of different places. And so when you think about like uh, pouring water, like from a pitcher into the, on the ground, when you pour it in you know, one place, versus you pour it across the entire, your entire yard, where's all that water going to go? And so when you're talking about dumping this water across several states or several hundred miles, like where does this go? Right, it washes into the rivers and streams. Well, those can only hold so much. So yeah. you're just talking about more and more flooding that's going to occur um, across a wider range of places. The other issue with Florence is they expect once it makes landfall, is for it to slow down a good bit, mm-hmm. and so it's essentially just going to. Uh, I'm not going to say stop completely, but it's essentially going to stop over the Carolinas and just dump water.
2: Which was some of the issue with Hurricane Harvey in Houston last year. Was it? You know, it wasn't a you know a high you know, category. Was pretty low as well. Um, um, but it stayed kind of in that area and brought so much water and flooding to to the region, which really is where the issues were. So it's a spatial element in that it's a big storm, but also a temporal element in that that big
1: storm is going to be hanging out for a while and making recovery efforts really slow down
0: yeah and uh, i mean i I think that's a good point about the recovery efforts because typically those can't start until the storm clears and the flood so i mean if roads are flooded we can't bring in fema in response and so restore power yeah and so there's that's why you you know see situations where um you know people set in their homes for you know days if not weeks you know post katrina or post harvey and some of these other things because the the recovery just can't start immediately um it takes a while before all of it can get can get up and running
1: I think one of the, the sort of common themes we're seeing in media coverage of this storm is could we have done anything different? And so one of the um, angles that Energy and Environment News, E&E News, has been um, uh, writing about or reporting on quite a bit is a significant report that was done, I, I believe it was in um, South Carolina in 2010, suggesting that uh, sea level rise was going to increase, that we are going to see um, more frequent, potentially more severe storms over time, and that um we needed to make some better decisions about where we developed along the coast so that we would be more resilient and more robust to the sorts of threats that were posed by climate change. So I think what we're seeing now is a lot of discussion about whether or not we can assign this particular storm and the way it's behaving to the um, changes we're seeing as a result of climate change. And so a, a lot of the scientific reporting is suggesting, okay, we are seeing you know millimeter um, type increases in terms of sea level and also um, oceans are warming and so that makes storms more intense and we're seeing a lot more precipitation. Um, but at Luke, you, uh, again when we were talking earlier you're saying that's one of the tricky things from a policy perspective is it's very hard to say well this particular storm can be attributed to climate change.
0: Well and so there's one question if we can connect these dots scientifically, right? And the other question is, can we connect these politically in a narrative that people understand? And again, going back and talking about people that live maybe on the Gulf Coast or, you know, uh, along the Carolinas and the Atlantic Shore that have basically grown up their entire lives with hurricanes hitting. They've seen major storms. You know, Camille came before Katrina. Clearly, that was before we talked about, you know, climate change. There's been major storms throughout history, right? So it's very hard for them to go, no, no, no. This one's just slightly more intense, and it's because of climate change. So it's very hard. Uh, and I think it's possible to connect these things scientifically. I think there's a lot of great research that does that. But I think the problem is, is creating that narrative where we can connect these things in the minds of people that have lived this life where hurricanes have been a normal thing this time of year for them.
2: Well, and I think you also mentioned earlier, Luke, about economic development booming along the coast. And so storms are more costly, not necessarily because the intensity has increased, but because the development has increased. And in fact,
1: um, a political scientist at CU Boulder, Roger Pilkey Jr., whose work has been quite controversial. Um, not because he denies that climate change is happening he doesn 't, but because he 's done some economic analyses that make exactly the point you just Made Jackie, which is that um, we're seeing increasing economic losses from these storms over time. Um, that is for sure, and it's real. Insurers are pointing that out, but it may be simply because we are developing more and more expensively along the coasts.
0: Well, and I don't know when the last time you've looked at what a beach house co- goes for in Charleston, but it's not a cheap purchase.
1: <laughs> I, I just want to go home and look at them now.
0: Yeah. You might be able to get a deal if I you could buy probably it. probably get a deal. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Yeah, that's great. I mean, I I do think, though, from a sort of uh, scientific or environmentalist perspective, there probably is a lot of frustration because um, we do expect to see increasing signals from storms. We may not be able to see them as much now, but if we add as much as a foot to our sea level rise and if the oceans are much warmer and if, you know, gulf streams are acting differently than they do now, the potential for these sorts of storms to increase in terms of their severity and their frequency is definitely there. And yet at a time when we probably could act and could intervene, we're not doing that. Um, Republican politics has dominated in places like South Carolina and uh, in Florida where that governor says that we cannot say the words climate change and so it makes you wonder where is the where's the space for action
2: but it's also hard in general right like <laughs> our political institutions are not great for making policy for the long term that's right, we're very yeah. much focused on the short term and so regardless of which party's in charge it's just a challenge to do that long-term planning yeah that's
0: right well and also want to go back to and uh, what Uh, to paraphrase uh, former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson when it was coming to climate change, I think it was when Harvey was hitting Houston, his point was climate change is a thing and the problem is just where we build. Um, Essentially to say that, you know, if we don't rebuild in these floodplains, this won't be a problem. And so I think maybe a kind of a a corollary here and thinking about the recovery and how we, the hurricanes are going to happen. And maybe the problem is that we're just building in the wrong places. But I think this also goes back to whether or not the people that are displaced by these hurricanes are victims by a hurricane or do they just make a bad decision and, and build in the wrong place and I think there's good arguments on both sides of that um, particularly as hurricanes continue to hit over time
1: That seems as politically difficult as Mm -hmm. getting action on climate change, though. If you look at, for example, the debates over floodplains in Mississippi, (laughs) trying to prevent people from building in particular areas. Here in Ada County, along the Boise River, trying to prevent people from building on the river when we know there will be a 100-year flood coming soon. um, Those political flights are just as hard as trying to get people to believe in climate change.
0: Well, I think there's risk in either side, right? Um, I mean, it's clearly we can't get a, a solution going for fixing the problem. We can't get a solution going for adapting the problem. <laughs> and we can't get a solution going, or there's at least risk at the individual level. We can't convince people not to make bad decisions. So it's just kind of, you know, there's not, doesn't seem to be a good alternative for us here. So,
2: so we need good
1: responses.
0: Yeah, basically. <laughs>
1: so it's a wicked policy problem. You know, it's going to persist and there's no easy solution. So it is indeed just something we live with. Mm-hmm. Uh, There you go. All right. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about another place that is dealing with hurricane recovery. And that's been in the news this week. Thanks to President Trump and Twitter. Uh, That's Puerto Rico. Uh, Come back and join us in a few minutes. She's alive. Alive. 89.9 and 93.5 FM. Radio Boise.
0: Radio Boise. Hey, you're back on the Big Tent on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. And Jen did not interrupt me during my intro that time, so I almost got it right.
1: That was a solid intro, Luke. I'm impressed.
0: Uh, Yes, and so I'm your host, uh, Luke Fowler. I'm here with my co host Jackie and Jen. And we're uh, wrapping up our discussion on hurricanes. Um, but this time, uh, we're going to switch gears and talk about a hurricane that happened a couple months ago um, in Puerto Rico. Um, and some of the interesting things that, that have happened, that have come up in the news in the last couple of weeks, um, and, and most importantly, is this new report after uh, out of George Washington University um, that basically said that hurric- the hurricane has caused 3,000 deaths in Puerto Rico. Now, the interesting part is the immediate storm only caused about a dozen dozen deaths in the aftermath. What this report says is there's been about 3,000 additional deaths than what we would normally expect in this time frame. So essentially to say the recovery, the, the hurricane, the recovery, the fallout from it has caused 3,000 people to die. Um, And there's been a lot of debate about who is responsible for that, um, and what do we do about it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting about this from my perspective is as I was watching Hurricane Maria unfold. it. It was so shocking to see the images that came out of that event and to also witness the ways in which the response was failing, and FEMA has admitted that they didn't do a great job. Brock Long has come out with, the head of FEMA has come out with several statements adm- admitting as much. Um, it took very long time to get people medical care, food, fresh water, power. Um, power. power only came on for uh, everybody on the island just weeks ago, even the last person on the was able to finally have electrical power restored. And yet it seemed like a sort of small drizzle of fatalities coming out, which didn't seem to match the severity of what was happening on the island. So as those numbers were sort of revised upward over time, first to maybe 35 and then a couple hundred and then to 600, and now this study out of George Washington suggesting that um, just shy of 3,000 people actually died as a result of that storm, It's it makes... For me, anyway, it feels a little more common sense compared with what looked like happened on the island uh, from here. However, that is not, uh, not everyone agrees. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if you've been following the news this week, you probably saw that President Trump really disagrees with the report. And in fact, he tweeted uh, today uh, I quote, 3,000 people did not die in the two hurricanes that hit Puerto Rico. When I left the island after the storm had hit, they had anywhere from 6 to 18 deaths. As time went by, it did not go up by much. So that that's really where he disagrees with the study. And then he says, then a long time later, they started to report really large numbers, like 3,000. And he goes on to say that Democrats have fabricated those numbers. So that's sort of his um, response to this. And
2: also to lay blame on the mayor. If yeah, I'm, uh, the, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, who they've been at
1: odds since the yeah. storm hit.
0: Yeah, I would say that's one of the most interesting parts of all this, right, is the San Juan mayor who has really he butted heads with Trump in a lot of really public ways. So that's, I think that's my favorite part of the story.
1: Yeah, and the media really <laughs> played off of that, right? I mean, they showed images of her actually in the water helping yeah. to rescue people, and they would juxtapose that with a not very good image of President Trump sort of throwing paper towels at hungry crowds, um, is sort of a Marie Antoinette analogy there. Um, but the, that sort of tete-a-tete has been set up from the beginning here.
0: Yeah, and I just, and sort worth throwing out to our, our listeners to, to think about, part of the danger from a storm comes, right, with clearly the wind and the flooding, but the aftermath, there's also dangers involved there. And when, Particularly when you're talking about an island, right, where mm-hmm. people can't really leave very easily. Um, you take away power, you take away clean water, you take away access to healthcare and food, this is this is what you get uh I mean you can think about the same thing in, in idaho if we we've we've cordoned off the treasure valley and turned off all those things, like people are going to pass away i mean that is a natural occurrence, and so we had an island that didn't was not getting imports was that was uh, of all the food of all the normal things they did not have all the modern conveniences that people are, are used to and this, a
1: vulnerable electric system as well yeah,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. um and so this is this isn't surprising basically to say um, that this happened that this recovery has been stretched out for so long that it's not surprising that people left in these conditions were not going to survive
2: what do you think how so Puerto Rico of course does not have statehood status um, but it is part of the United States states what role do you think that kind of weird in between may play in a response to a storm I think the left has really tried to frame this as an issue of
1: racism, right, Mm -hmm. to be quite frank, that uh, had this been in uh, Houston, you would have seen a much uh, faster response because the residents uh, look different. Um, And this is all happening against the backdrop of the immigration debate, of course, and sort of some of the accusations of racism uh, there. But I'm sure there are other angles to think about when we answer that question.
0: Yeah, you know, and I I wouldn't frame this as racism. I would just say that this is a small island in the Caribbean that most Americans can't find on a map, much less realize that it's part of the U.S. And they vote in the presidential election, but they don't really carry much weight. And I think it's just easily forgotten about right I mean for the most part like I think that's what you're talking about is a population that we don't have to pay attention to because they don't really have much of a voice in our system yeah, they and are, like
2: a non-voting member of Congress yeah and no representation. And so there's not really yeah.
0: advocates there so I think it's very easy and so when you're looking at say Houston which is a huge city there's people that talk about Houston are interested in it I're not thinking anybody cares about Puerto Rico so I think it's easy for us to look overlook
2: yeah they are tax-paying citizens yeah
1: I wonder how much of this can be laid at the feet of sort of a poorly staffed poorly functioning bureaucracy too. That's another frequent criticism that gets, you know, uh, lobbed against this administration as they've been slow to staff things up and slow to fund things. Is that playing any role here?
0: Well, we saw the same criticisms about FEMA and I mean, not the exact same, but we saw heavy criticisms uh, uh, against FEMA after Hurricane Katrina. I mean, honestly, there's no recovery of any hurricane or any national disaster that is going to go perfectly. I mean, rarely do you see people come out after a natural disaster and go, this was an amazing recovery response, right? That's just not something that happens very often. I think this one was probably worse than most. Um, But honestly, there's not like FEMA is not necessarily an organization that's known for, you know, like catching up with a bunch of wins, right? They're not necessarily known as doing an amazing job. So I don't know if this is just par for the course of them.
2: They also tend to be underfunded. And then the report came out this week as well, that funding was being moved from FEMA to ICE, which may also be concerning as we move into storm season.
1: Yeah, that said, I I have some colleagues, uh, Catalina De Onis, who's up in uh, Oregon, who write about Puerto Rico and sort of their colonialist history, though. And they um, I think she would see this as part of a larger pattern of colonialism, if you will, sort of like. Um, owning Puerto Rico, taking what we can from Puerto Puerto Rico. There was a lot of industry there at one point, Um, but not really investing in it Mm -hmm. in any meaningful way. Um, And I think, you know, coming on the heels of those other two storms, um, you know, in Houston and in Miami where the response did seem quicker, not perfect, Mm -hmm. right, Mm -hmm. but did seem quicker. I could see how folks on the island might see this as a very uneven, Mm -hmm. unsatisfying
0: Response. Well, and also point out, and not to defend FEMA or really any part of our government ever. Um, <laughs> this, I mean, there's a huge, I mean, there's a different logistical challenge of oh, taking yeah. supplies to Florida mm-hmm. than there is to an island that is off the shore, right? I mean, when you're just talking about the logistics of Trucks versus ships, um, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, so this is
1: this and no mutual aid agreement. Like, if you look here, um, if there's a storm in a state, other utilities from other states mm-hmm. will come in and help get the utilities back up. Puerto Rico has no such yeah, agreement.
0: And you're, I mean, again, you're talking about how do you get those people and the supplies to the mm-hmm. island? So this is a huge logistical challenge. And I mean, Puerto Rico to start with did not have strong infrastructure that was planned in a way to right. survive yeah. a lot of this. So I mean, some of this could be. A response effort, but some of this might just be that it is just not a place that any response was going to work for.
1: Yeah, I think we should say, too, that President Trump would not be the first president who's uh, been accused of mishandling a disaster. Uh, President Bush certainly Mm -hmm. came up for a lot of criticism in response to Katrina as well. All right, well, we're going to leave it there. Uh, Make sure you turn on the Weather Channel and uh, watch what's happening with that storm as it comes in. Send some good wishes to the folks who are evacuating and those folks who are trying to ride it out as well. You've been listening to The Big Tent. You can follow us on Big Tent Radio
2: at Facebook and at Twitter, uh, and we will talk to you next week.